Thank you, Paul and worship team. <laughs> Just doing what I've seen done up here. Well, uh, when Jim asked me if I wanted to speak today, we talked a bit about what would I share about. And we wanted to have a message that kind of connected with the tone and, you know, the vibe of the series that we've been doing, this really series where we're asking questions, exploring some things about our faith and culture. And we, we talked about something that I had presented to the young adults about a year ago. And the more we talked, the more it felt right. Um, so I dove back into this topic. It's one that I wrestle with. And I'm hoping that we can all wrestle with it a bit more this morning. And it's a word that we've been all hearing a lot over the last few years. And the word is deconstruction. Raise your hand if you've heard that word in our... All right. It's become a big topic in and around faith circles. You know, we see it in terms of our declining church attendance. Not here, thank God. Uh, and attitudes around the world about religion and faith in general. The number of people these days who are openly grappling with the deepest questions of their spiritual journey. And some are finding themselves really reapproaching their faith in a reconstructed way. And some are walking away altogether. Now, I read one definition of deconstruction as taking a massive inventory of your faith, tearing every doctrine from the cupboard, and turning each one over in your hand. And you can see why some Christians feel really threatened by this. I mean, every question could be a gateway drug to another question, and then that could maybe kind of lead to a complete lack of belief in anything, right? But I wonder, isn't there also a threat to really resisting this process? Is there a threat to saying, stop asking questions? Are there healthy elements in an inventory taking? And why would we make questions feel forbidden if we feel confident in their eventual answers? See, I'm beginning to think that people don't walk away from the faith because they have questions. I think sometimes they walk away because they don't feel like they can ask them. And when they do dig deeper, I don't think people necessarily walk away because they find Jesus lacking. I think it's sometimes because they find us lacking. I want to be a confident follower of Christ. I want to be confident in the foundations of faith and confident that they can withstand scrutiny. I want to be open to the fact that he has new things to show us and that sometimes maybe God himself is challenging our preconceptions. And I want to be a safe place for my friends and family to ask, to wrestle, even to doubt. So how can I do that? How can I look at deconstruction in the spiritual journeys of those around me and not panic, but walk alongside them in a healthy, helpful way? Um, first of all, why do I think this process is or can be a healthy one? I think I can say this confidently. None of us is in a perfect spot where our view of God and how he works is concerned. I mean, we've all got some little issues, little cracks in there that probably need addressing. I mean, I think even of some of the verbiage used in the Bible to describe our faith journey. In Philippians, Paul exhorts us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And in Romans, he tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And to me, this doesn't sound like a faith that is static. 
Even when I hear talk of new wine and old wineskins, you know, or moving on from spiritual milk to meat. All of this to me points to the idea of a faith process. You know, the moment of salvation, most of us can remember the moment when we accepted Christ and we said we're moving forward in a relationship with him. That's something that we do hold dear and it's something that we should hold dear. But I think we make a mistake if we fall into the pattern of thinking that it's just a moment or that our lives are only split into two categories, before conversion and after conversion. Because I think it's much more than that. It's a continual process of sifting and pruning and maturing and holding our preconceived human notions of things up to the light of God's scripture and his spirit and seeing if everything still holds up. The verse about the renewing of our minds, that full verse, it says this, Romans 12, 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's the first time I've ever had a sermon slide. I just want to point that out. I'm very proud. <laughs> Thank you. Our little boys all growed up. <laughs> Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, to me, that's one of the reasons for digging in and kicking a little bit of dust around sometimes. It is so easy to conform to the pattern of this world. And we tend to think of the world as just sin, obvious immorality, godlessness, things that exist firmly outside of Christian thought. But it's more slippery than that. The pattern of the world isn't just the things we consider immorality, but it's the structures where we find comfort, where we put our faith and where we put emphasis. It's very easy for the patterns of the world to leak into these structures. I can give you some simple examples. It's very easy to think that if you are seeing financial blessing in your life, ease and comfort, that God is happy with you. Or that that means God is moving in my life. God is working in my life because everything is working. We think that if, we're, if things are running smoothly, it's probably because we've made God proud with our behavior and our devotion. And if we keep running into roadblocks, we tend to say, well, God must not be in this, right? If things start moving smoothly, God showed up. And we meet roadblocks. Yeah, God must not be in this. That is absolutely how it works with your boss or with your friends, with all the human structures around you. But it's not necessarily how God works. Because I don't think that philosophy would work very well with Mary as she was looking for a place to have the Messiah. I think we could agree that Mary was within the will of God carrying the Messiah, and nothing worked out. Even when she had the child, she had to watch him die in front of her. How about the many martyrs who were killed for preaching the gospel? See, to think that issues, roadblocks, difficulty indicates that God is either not involved or not pleased, it doesn't hold up. And I think you and I know that, but see, this is how the world works. And when it comes down to how we actually think and act, even within our Christian faith, it keeps popping up. 
We tend to view health in a church based on financial and attendance numbers. We follow leaders based on their looks, obviously. <laughs> we follow leaders based on looks, charisma, talent. I'll confess to you guys, I find myself subconsciously adhering to something sometimes that feels a lot like karma. Where I'm turning the idea of Christian love into something that will ultimately cover me in the long run. I'm doing good so it will come back to me. You can keep telling me that's not right, and I can tell you the same thing, but rooting it out and keeping a philosophy like that from driving me, that takes some effort. And that can get a little bit messy. Where did it come from? What is it about me that makes it easier for me to believe that than what Scripture actually says? See, that's the pattern of the world actually showing up in my faith. I have to address that. See, that to me is one version of what a small, healthy deconstruction project looks like in my life. See, I mean, honestly, I think that's what's going on even in this whole sermon series. We're looking at some things that we hear and we read and we think and we say to each other and we're going, wait, really? So with that in mind, I have three thoughts. I'm supposed to have three thoughts. Three points on how we view those around us who are entering a process like this. And hopefully they will be food for thought for all of us. And the first one, deconstruction does not have to be demolition. Those are different things. Because a friend or family member is opening up some walls in their house to see what's inside, it doesn't have to mean they're going to tear the whole house down. When my mom and dad moved into a house about 20 years ago, everything seemed like it was going just fine. The inspection, the appraisal, the purchase, all of it just went without a hitch. But a few months into living there, my mom couldn't shake the idea that something in the guest room didn't smell right. Now, first of all, a little context. My mom has a bionic nose. <laughs> we could, on family trips in the 80s, man, we could check into a hotel, and she could walk into that room and tell if anyone had been smoking in that room in the last five years. Virginia Slims, menthols, June 83, <laughs> and we were out. <laughs> um, there, was a, there was a girl that I dated in high school, and I was supposed to have broken it off with her. I was told to do so. I agreed to do so. I thought, you know, I can probably go out with this girl a couple more times. Nobody's going to know the difference. Until my mom smelled her perfume on the seatbelt <laughs> in the car. <laughs> Bionic. So when this house thing happened, I mean, weeks continued to go by, and my dad was the opposite. My dad couldn't smell anything, and he was like, it's fine. She's like, no, something is wrong. And so they finally had somebody come out, identify where it was coming from, opened up the walls, and there was a dead skunk in the wall, in the wall of the house. So at that point, I think she may have wanted to tear the whole house down. But what really happened was that something didn't feel right, didn't smell right, and it kept nagging and nagging until it demanded a closer look. And that closer look was messy. And it was expensive. And it looked a lot like tearing a house apart. But there was something in the walls that shouldn't have been there. And it took a little mess to get it out. But any good construction worker, and I'm assuming there are some in this room, 
will tell you that you need to identify the essential parts of a structure before you start swinging a hammer. I mean, right? You, you want to get inside the wall to look around. You do not want the wall to come down. And I look at our faith and theology the same way. I look at things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and I think we actually have a slide of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and the earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I mean, that feels like columns that we're built on, right? The Nicene Creed says a little more about a, a few of these issues that a lot of you could definitely educate me on as well. But they, these are very simple, direct picture of what we look at as some of the columns that hold this whole thing up. But then along the way, for all of us, human tradition, denominationalism, consumerism, money, nationalism, and politics have found their way into nearly everyone's version of Christianity somehow, some way. And sometimes, just bad teaching. Thankfully not here, until today. <laughs> but no, no, that is one thing that I take confidence in here, that we hear preaching that comes directly from the Word. Right? Bad teaching doesn't last for just one Sunday. For me, I was raised in a church that was pretty fixed on the idea of losing one's salvation. And I don't know where you fall on that topic, but as a six-year-old, it's a little scary. And there were long Sunday school discussions on whether you would go to hell if you died in a high-speed collision and you used your last breath to shout out a swear word. Even as a six-year-old, that terrified me. And it didn't take a whole lot of work to dismantle that exact scenario. <laughs> but I've dealt with uncertainty in my salvation into my adult life. I've dealt with fear and suspicion of God as a result. How can you have a proper understanding of the grace of God when you think your whole salvation rests on your ability to keep your shirt tucked in and to keep your eyes dotted and your T's crossed? See, to me, that doesn't smell right. And I had to open up my walls and find some dead skunks in there. And I think that's happening with a lot of people these days. A lot of the detangling people are doing has to do with asking a hard question. Is everything that I heard in church true? Look, let me get this out right now, because I don't want to be accused of any kind of church bashing whatsoever. The church is a gift to the world. From basics like good citizenship to humanitarian acts to financial giving, the church has been invaluable to the human race since its inception, not to mention the fact that we're preaching the gospel 50 times a year in this place, all right? But we also have to be honest, it's run by a bunch of humans. And we hear over and over again about people who have been wounded by the church and in the church, and they've been driven away by wrong teaching, lack of acceptance and hurtful statements. There are traditions and rituals that people just kind of added along the way. And some of them are good, and some of them are indifferent. Some of them are actually bad. 
If you want to know what I'm talking about, just look at the different denominations and how they handle sacraments. Look at all the different views on the end times. I mean, even more superficially, look at music styles. Look at the show, the production. These are structures that we've added. I mean, there's a celebrity culture in the church right now, which was not God's idea. We've added a lot. And then add to that these last few years of some relentless, vitriolic arguments among Christians about politics, immigration, the pandemic, about everything. Is it any wonder that so many of us are a little dented, a little off kilter? So when you find that your friends and your family, when they are starting to look critically at tradition, form, or rhetoric, try not to get defensive or panic because some of those things might need to be shaken. And not, not only is that normal based on what we've seen lately, God has seen this before. At times, there have actually been moments of upheaval of tradition that have really resulted in positive change. I mean, I would look at the Protestant Reformation as an example. Martin Luther saw unhealthy traditions that crept into the church. He spoke out, and we saw a change that has resulted in what we now know as the Protestant church. That was messy, though. Even on an individual level, when it comes to your friend or family member who's searching, we talk about a God who's seen this before, and we talk about a God who's not shaken by our questions. I want to remind you of one thing. God is no more interested in losing that loved one than you are. God is no more interested in letting any of his sheep fall away than you are. And his word is strong enough to withstand our scrutiny. We have to believe that. So God is not threatened by the questioning going on. Even when people seem angry, even when everybody's doing their Lieutenant Dan moment up on the mast and screaming at him, I don't believe God is threatened. <laughs> and then we take a look at the questions that are being asked. Is it challenging one of our most core values? Is this challenging something that we found there in the Apostles' Creed? Well, see, that's bordering on demolition to me then I do start to go, hold on. If that's the case, there's wisdom and love in doing what I can to help that person hold firm. Christ's resurrection, for example, that's pivotal to our faith, and that takes belief. But if somebody's trying to sift through some teachings and some experiences, even some lies, to separate Christ's beauty from man's ugly mistakes, that's not demolition. That's somebody trying to get everything out of the way to see who Jesus really is. That's like Zacchaeus climbing a tree. I need to see him. And Jesus was thrilled with that effort. As someone wrestling with a certain specific moral position, and that's causing them to dive into different translations or to seek historical context, to see what, what did the Bible mean when it said this? Listen, that friend or family member may come to a different conclusion than yours. But can we support the fact that someone is going to actually read the Bible more? Can we support the fact that they're going to take a critical, in-depth look and try to seek the translation and try to seek the history and to try to understand what was being said? Look, I support that. That's not demolition. Taking a closer look, we call that study. And ultimately, it actually works to build faith. And along with some prayer and scripture diving of your own, you can be that experienced construction worker 
that helps rip some walls open without tearing the whole place down. My second point is that deconstructing does not have to mean abandonment. See, it's important to draw a distinction between those who are digging into uncomfortable places and those who are not digging at all anymore. I've had friends over the years, family members, people I've worked with who have read books and listened to speakers that made me a little itchy, made me a little uncomfortable. Some off-center ideas, some books that presented fresh takes on things that I didn't really think needed fresh takes. This can be tricky territory because I, I don't want anyone to hear me negating the fact that solid theology is important. And I certainly don't want to say that all paths are going to the same place, so you write that down or whatever. But see, I want to rest in the idea that Jesus wants to be found. That Jesus wants to be found. It's like when my kids play hide-and-seek with me. Honestly, I don't think they're watching. They're not very good at it. My four-year-old in particular is just not good at it. She doesn't understand that, like, the microwave is too small for me. <laughs> I have to draw them away from barking up some really wrong trees. And so usually I'm just like, I'm over here, you know? <laughs> because the fun of the game, I want to be found. I want to see them have that thrill of finding me. And my knees hurt from hiding behind the hamper. <laughs> Matthew 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be opened. And Jeremiah 29 says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. <laughs> now it's important to note that particularly in the Matthew passage, God, just a few verses prior, God gives an admonition about not being deceived by false prophets, okay? So again, this is not about just finding the truth in any old place. That's not what I'm saying. But I will say this. God has a soft spot for the seekers. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. So I believe God values the seeking, the asking, and the wrestling. I believe he draws near to that. And like a dad in an interminable game of hide and seek, I believe he wants to be found. Look, there are a lot of places to find answers these days. A lot of places to find perspectives and interpretations. And I think we're in an age where all of us need to know the names of the prominent thinkers in and around our faith. The ones you agree with and the ones you don't. I think it's very important for us to not just put blinders on and lock down with what we think we figured out, but we need to know what people are saying. We need to know what books are being read. So when a friend or family member comes and says, hey, I'm reading this book by so-and-so, it'd be great if you knew who that was so you knew if it was time to buy a copy, if you knew it was time to maybe suggest another book, or if you knew if it was just time to maybe just pray for them a little bit. It's important for us to know what's happening around us, what's being said around us. But when it comes to digging deep, just remember that chipping away does not necessarily mean walking away. More reading, listening, pondering, that could just be a part of more seeking, of knocking, of drawing near. 
we're told that our God values those things. I want to be clear with all this, though. People are walking away. They are. And this word deconstruction is often used to basically just mean letting go. And you'll see it out there sometimes. I'm not one of those guys who runs around with a big sign, standing outside every concert at the forum saying, the end is near. It's not really my vibe. But Jesus did tell us that this is what it was going to look like when his return got closer. Let me keep your lamps trimmed and burning, right? He's coming back. And here's a bit of a longer passage in Matthew 24. And you'll see where I'm going, I think, by the time I get to the end of it. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. This is starting to sound real familiar, y'all. And these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. I wish I could skip that line, but I can't. And at, many, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. There's way more there than I can unpack, and I'm not sure that I'm even the guy who's qualified to do it. I also meant to point out today, if there's anything that I say today that you feel uncomfortable with or you don't like, Jim will be happy to talk with you when he comes back. (laughs) But it's not hard to draw some parallels to now, is it, when you read that passage? And amid some necessary deconstruction, there is a lot of deception. And it's leading a lot of people to abandon the faith completely. I have to be honest about that. But what's confusing is that the two things can look similar. You're asking questions. You're challenging deeply held beliefs. But I think the difference comes at the very start, at the purpose that's driving the questions. It's a little bit more about the why than the what. See, I want to be one of those people, like we're talking about Zacchaeus, who's saying, get everything out of the way so I can see Jesus more clearly. All of it. I just want to see Jesus. Versus a deception that says, maybe I need to get Jesus out of the way so I can see my life more clearly. That's a real different why. And I don't want to miss the fact that the very first deception from the serpent in the garden It started with the question, did God really say that? But see, there's a difference there, too. There's a difference in motivation. Satan asked that question to give Adam and Eve an out. I want to ask that same question, did God really say that? But I want to ask it as a means to go deeper in. Deconstruction does not have to mean abandonment, but one has to be very aware and very deliberate about one's motivations and the position of the heart in the process. The last point that I want to make is that deconstruction does not have to be solitary. 
You can join your friends in their journey. And I don't mean that means you're like, okay, I want to just start tearing my thing down too. I'm talking about their journey. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. See, we just started talking about the dangers here, you know, talking about deception. But along with that, there is resentment, there's cynicism, and there's fatigue right around the corner. And look, I think this is a time not to be judgmental for those who are resentful and those who feel cynical and those who feel fatigued. I think it's time to be their friends. I think it's time to approach with love, with wisdom, sometimes with silence. But these are situations that can leave a searcher alone and defenseless to spiritual attack. The enemy would love to use our questions, like he did in the garden. He'd love to use our questions and even our doubts to isolate us. But one of the most prominent moments of doubt in the scripture was from the disciple Thomas. Thomas doubted whether that was really the risen Jesus standing in front of him. And he was open about his doubts in front of a group of friends, right? And the way Jesus responded was he drew closer to Thomas. He didn't say, oh, you doubt me? I'm out. There's a lot of work to raise from the dead. I can't have you doubting me. He said, touch him. Touch my wounds. I'll show you. And when he lovingly proved himself to Thomas, everyone's faith was strengthened. The doubt in Thomas's heart, when combined with the love and grace of Jesus, led to a moment that strengthened everyone's faith. And we're talking about it today. Even before then, when you consider Christ's parables, if you're going to look at the thread of mystery that he weaves through his teachings, then we have to acknowledge the fact that they were meant to be discussed. That was part of Jewish tradition, and we shouldn't lose that. We're really good at doing all this on our own, with a phone or a laptop in the late night hours. The questions are meant to be shared between friends and family, and we talk through them together. So don't be embarrassed when you have questions. And please don't judge others when they have them. But I want to repeat something I said earlier. All of us are human. All of us fall short. And I'd say none of us is in a perfect spot where our view of God and his will is concerned. We've all got some issues, some little cracks in there. Does that always mean we need to tear everything down to the studs? No, not necessarily. But it does mean we should be understanding of those who are digging deep. We should have some humility when we're looking at them. And maybe that realization makes it easier to walk alongside them as we address our own issues. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us an indication of what type of faith will please God. And he says, unless you change and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I always took that to mean that I should probably accept things more blindly, you know, trust without questions. That's faith of a child. I thought that until I had children. <laughs> and the child's favorite word is why. Some of the moments that I felt closest to my kids or when I've been able to step in when they felt confused and help them untangle something. Because I'm their father. And they've drawn near to me so that I can provide clarity to what they're seeing in the world around them. And I draw near and I try to help. 
Questions don't have to separate a child and a father. And the faith of a child, I'm telling you, if he just said become like a child, and I was like, oh, I know what that means. It's a lot of questions. There's honestly an element of deconstruction in this very idea of becoming like a child. Whatever you think you've put together, whatever wisdom, whatever maturity you think you've got, whatever age and adulthood have afforded you, strip it all away and become a child again. Jesus said things like, you've heard this said, but I tell you this. Watch me flip these tables. Watch me tear this veil. For a carpenter and a creator, Jesus sure liked to pull things apart, didn't he? <laughs> Jesus is the answer. But he posed a lot of questions. And at the end of the searching, I think we keep coming back to two of the questions that he asked. Not questions that we asked, but questions that he asked. He looked at Peter and he said, who do people say that I am? And who do you? say that I am. Peter answered correctly, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And you see, through all the digging, all the untangling and the questioning, the goal is to end up here, seeing Christ as he is, for who he is, unburdened by the conceptions of teachers, preachers, authors, singers, songwriters. Can I just stop for a second? People quote songs like they're scripture. They're not. Even the ones I wrote. <laughs> Maybe especially. <laughs> but that's something that, that the people that I work with, we try, we try to take that really seriously, and I hope everybody does, because something you read in a book, something you hear in a song, something you hear on a show, that begins to come in and almost act like scripture in your life if you're not careful. So, who do you say that he is? Could this whole complicated process lead to something that simple? Are we placing all the responsibility on ourselves to find him and to figure it out? Are we losing the fact that he is pursuing us? Like the father of the prodigal son who ran to meet his child while he was still a long way off. Like the conversion of Saul when he was on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians, to take them back to be questioned and possibly executed. He wasn't even drawn near to God. He's about as far as you could be, but God came to him. And when it seems like someone is walking away completely, don't forget to actually pray for an encounter with the Holy Spirit. Because it may not be about the right book. And it may not be about some wisdom or some conversation that you have. There's nothing more powerful than an experience with Jesus himself. Agreed? The Holy Spirit can show up in a supernatural, undeniable way, and it can be like Damascus Road, a glorious visitation, or it can be through a dream, a beautiful moment in nature, a song, a conversation, anywhere. And if we don't really believe that he can or will do that, maybe we're the ones who are having a crisis in our belief system. Will God not come to your friend who's searching? Your family member who's questioning? To you? I believe you will. And there's great confidence in that. Because not only can he withstand our questions, he can bridge the distance. And he can and will reveal himself.
I'm going to do something else I've never done. I'm going to invite the band to come up <laughs> as I close. Because <laughs> through all this, I want to close with a thought. Don't miss the fact that God may be in the process of deconstructing you. John 15, 2 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the keeper of the vineyard. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes to make it even more fruitful. Cutting away, peeling back. And when you find yourself with questions and dilemmas in regard to your faith, ask yourself, is it possible this is part of the pruning process? I mean, what if the unrest you sometimes feel in regards of what you're seeing in the church or in Christian culture around you or in your own heart, what if that's the whispering of his still small voice? Nobody said the renewing of your mind was always going to feel good. Are the rumblings in my soul meant to draw me deeper into scripture, into context, into translation, into really knowing the word, into really knowing God? It's not about maintaining the status quo or keeping the waters calm. It's about giving ourselves completely to Christ and his countercultural revolutionary love. It might mean some upheaval and mess in your life or in the life of someone you know. But if you've ever been to a mall when they're doing work, pardon our mess. This is how rebuilding and transformation happens. And the amazing part is that then he's going to use you to cause some upheaval, some mess, and some transformation in the world for the sake of his kingdom. Let's bring our questions and our friends' questions before him. And let him participate in the process of shaping us, changing us, and revealing more of himself all the way. Let's pray. Father, I even bring a message like this with fear and trembling. But I do believe that you are speaking to us, you are pursuing us, you are reaching to us, Lord. And so... We sing this song in response, knowing that you're a good father. Knowing that whatever we've heard about you, Lord, you want to show us who you really are. Let us continue to seek and pursue. In your son's name, amen.